Welcome to Strong Prospects, the employment law podcast made by barristers from St. Philip's Chambers, where we look to bring together unique insights into the latest developments at the cutting edge of UK employment law. In this episode, I'll be speaking with St. Philip's Chambers employment barrister Wendy Miller about a recent discrimination claim she ran where the claimant was mocked for going through the menopause. Along the way, we'll consider the following questions. What does an employer need to do to create a modern workplace that is welcoming for those going through the menopause? What laws allow claimants to bring claims for discrimination associated with the menopause? What resources are there to help employers and employees avoid workplace discrimination connected with the menopause? By the end of this episode, you'll have a better grasp of these issues and be a step closer to being a champion in this emerging area of employment law. I'm Alex McMillan, your host for this episode, and also a specialist employment barrister at St. Philip's Chambers. A few legal publications have noticed a growing trend. The growth in employment tribunal cases of discrimination complaints related to the menopause. A research piece published by Sinead Casey, an employment partner at Linklaters in summer 2021, entitled The Menopause Revolution, noted the rapid increase in menopause-related cases going forward to the tribunal. In the middle of a sharp upward trend relative to even a recent year, such as 2018, there are now over 50 published cases of employment uh, tribunal cases in this novel area. So the trend has garnered interest in the press. One of the most recent cases, with judgment handed down earlier in January 2022, relates to a claim brought by Lee Best, who uh, brought a claim to the London East Employment Tribunal which succeeded for age and sex discrimination, victimisation, unlawful detriment and unfair dismissal. The claimant worked as a sales assistant at a pet food vendor in Billericay. The tribunal found she'd been dismissed and subjected to detriment for blowing the whistle in relation to COVID safety concerns. But the aspect of that case that has interested the press relates to sexual and age-related harassment under Section 26 of the Equality Act 2010, and victimisation under Section 27 because of the claimant's complaints around that. The tribunal found that the claimant's manager asked her directly if she were menopausal. In doing so, it invaded her privacy and violated her dignity. The context was that the claimant had made clear she did not wish to discuss menopause, and her manager had pursued a conversation on the topic anyway, making further comments about her age. During a discussion initiated by a customer, During about the menopause, the claimant's boss had asked the claimant, are you in your menopause? Following which the claimant complained to the manager's wife, who was also a manager in the business. She was told to stop moaning and that she had to get on with people or they would have to call it a day. That was held to be detrimental treatment because of her protected act. With me to talk about the case is Wendy Miller, one of the stars of the employment team at St. Philip's Chambers of 20 Years Cool. Wendy is, as far as I'm aware, unique, and certainly unique in our chambers, for her rare dual specialism in both employment and crime. This means she can bring to bear her um, forensic cross-examinational skills on witnesses, skills honed in questioning some of those charged with the gravest criminal offences, into the employment arena. Wendy, how do you find having a dual practice in crime and employment? Um, hi, Alex. Um, I find it uh, quite fascinating, actually, having a dual practice, because quite often 
Um, both areas of law will cross over. Uh, sometimes uh, the criminal element will cross over into employment practice, for example, matters of fraud um, or theft of an employee being uh, dismissed for gross misconduct. Um, and also the skill sets that you learn in cross-examining witnesses in a very formal environment in the Crown Court and dealing with very serious uh, matters of, of law um, really do assist when, when you have to deploy quite a forensic uh, cross-examination skill set in employment law. So um, I've been enjoying a dual practice for some time now. That's um, that, that's an interesting insight, Wendy, and I'm sure um, that there's a natural uh, complementarity between those two areas. Um, I wanted to ask also about how your practice is developing at the moment. We're at the we're recording in March 2022, at the tail end of the uh, COVID pandemic, where restrictions are being lifted. Are you are you mostly doing remote hearings, or are you mostly back in person for for employment matters these days? Well, in person is slowly coming back uh, as a default position, but um, I have to say, the um, cloud video platform um, facility has been absolutely fantastic during COVID, and uh, I hope it remains for a lot of hearings because it's been. Uh, invaluable for witnesses that are, for example, a little bit vulnerable, uh, nervous, uh, and don't like entering a courtroom and feel that they can achieve best evidence by giving evidence at home. Some uh, witnesses are disabled, for example, and it takes them a lot of effort to get to a tribunal just for the sake of giving evidence in person. So uh, it has many, many benefits uh, and I hope that um, to a large extent cloud video platform remains something that's used heavily by the courts. I think I can agree with you there I mean one method that was used has been used in in in-person hearings for those suffering from anxiety is the use of a screen Uh, literally not a computer screen but a, a screen to block off the view of other witnesses or those in the audience uh, who, who might be intimidating to a particularly vulnerable witness. It seems to me using cloud video platform is, is naturally very convenient for witnesses who, who's, who struggle uh, with anxiety and, 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 and don't relish the prospects of, of being watched whilst they're giving evidence or seeing those who are watching them. So that's, that's one yes. way in which it's, it's been quite useful. Yes, it's- it's interesting you draw that parallel because it's it's um it is so useful i i can relate to my criminal experience there because often uh, in a criminal court when you have a trial they'll just screen the witness from the jur- from the uh, defendant uh, so the jury can still see the witness and the defendant can't but that witness um still has the procedure of going into court feeling like they're in a very formal oppressive environment and it's the same in in an employment tribunal Um, it's no different when a witness feels vulnerable and intimidated and so uh, I've had cases recently in employment tribunals where 
uh, a witness had um, a personality disorder and intrusive thoughts and found it very difficult to give evidence in front of uh, the uh, manager of the company who was actually his ex-partner. Uh, and so we were simply able to deal with it by her switching off her screen so she could hear him but not see but he couldn't see her uh, and he was able to give evidence freely uh, and he felt much more settled and relaxed about that and of course giving evidence from his home so uh, it worked very effectively that's really interesting i of course i had absolutely minimal uh, criminal experience, um, but I'm aware that these techniques are, are far more common in, in the criminal courts and the Crown Court for those sort of serious crimes like sexual crime that uh, you, you might be prosecuting there relative to the employment tribunal. But the, I, I can see the, the, the advantages in, in, in using some of these techniques and, and, and leveraging the new technology to, to, to make it easier to do so. Um, yes. I should maybe steer back to the main topic today, which is uh, I was hoping you might be able to talk to us a little bit about the extremely positive result you achieved recently for your client, Miss Best. Um, I read the judgment uh, in this case uh, ahead of recording this episode, and um, that was a split hearing. So just to check understanding, that that's a situation where the initial decision is about liability only, and then remedy gets settled later. So where do things stand at the moment? Well, we've uh, done the main hearing and we've now had um, the remedy uh, judgment as well. So the, the, the case is uh, final at the moment, but um, we are facing an appeal uh, and we'll have to see what uh, comes out of that. Do you, do you know the basis of the appeal yet, or has that not been intimated? Well, we have received um, the grounds of the appeal from um, the other party, um, from the respondents. Um, we haven't been invited to comment on it yet, but um, it's primarily an application that the tribunal erred in, in law, um, but we shall see what happens. Yeah, I'll, I'll look out for that. Sounds interesting. Um, mm. I think with, with your case, it, it garnered quite a lot of interest in the media. And yeah. I often feel I, I have quite good feelings about how a case is likely to play out before uh, a judge or uh, a panel in an employment case. Um, but I really don't have a good sense of what's going to be deemed interesting by the media. So obviously a Supreme Court case or a Court of Appeal case will be deemed interesting um, because it's of uh, academic importance in a sense. But in terms of what really captures the attention of journalists, I, I don't have a good sense of that. Your case, however, without doubt, caught the attention of the media, made the national press. Were you surprised by this relatively high level uh, reception that the case enjoyed? Well, I was. I think we deal with so many fascinating cases as uh, barristers that it, it is hard to um, understand which case is going to uh, build momentum within the media. 
but upon reflection, I think the menopause is is so topical, isn't it, um, in an employment setting uh, at the moment. And, and it has been actually for a good 18 months to two years now. And um, there isn't, in fact, a lot of case law on the menopause, surprisingly. Uh, but uh, And there weren't any media representations at the final hearing in this case. So uh, but it, it's very interesting, isn't it, for um, the public to read about these cases because the vast majority of the public or female members of the public can relate to this so easily. And so uh, I think that's why it really did gain uh, media attention and especially after COVID when people are now very focused on mental health and their well-being particularly at work so uh, this I I think really did attract a lot of interest from a a very um, wide cross-section from an employer perspective and and employees. Of course the case was about victimisation wasn't it for blowing the whistle as as well as sex sex age discrimination because of menopause references but it was, it was the letter yeah. wasn't it that was held to be discriminatory and that was really the focal point of interest uh, for the media but presumably for just just the reasons you've identified I, I wondered when you were preparing uh, your cross-examination or your skeleton argument for this case did you did you draw on any comparator cases is it is it a case that you were able to um, uh, look elsewhere and find uh, useful points of comparison well, no, there aren't, there aren't many cases uh, in actual fact that you're able to draw comparison. And, and this case was very much about uh, just dealing with the facts as you find them, as most tribunals will. I mean, sometimes it is often uh, a go-to for barristers or counsel to, uh, and lawyers, in fact, to, to look at precedent in case law to get a feel of of whether a case has good prospects or not. But in this case, there wasn't a lot of well-trodden ground concerning uh, the menopause. And uh, I approached it uh, as a case with its own merits, really, uh, that triggered various parts of the law. uh, And uh, in its own right, it was, uh, in my opinion, quite a strong case um, concerning various detriments and and discrimination, and so uh, I really uh, a- approached it from the angle that the tribunal will just look at this case on its own merits and and be able to make a decision. It seems to me that you, you might be particularly well placed at the moment to comment on any actionable employment law insights that employers might take note of based on on the best case. So for one thing, I wanted to ask you whether you consider it's now necessary for employers to have a separate menopause policy. Is that something that's a good idea? Well, I do think it's necessary now. Uh, I think many organisations will already have quite a few policies in place, won't they, for health and safety and and sickness, absence and performance management and flexible working. Uh, And I think that 
policies either need to be reviewed um, to ensure that they have made adjustments to take account of the menopause. But I think it is extremely advisable, given this case, uh, that uh, a, a employer considers now doing a separate uh, policy to represent the menopause because it, it's something that's now, uh, given the breadth of issues uh, and risks relating to the menopause at work, it really is something that should be a standalone policy, in my opinion. So off the back of that, you refer to the risks of, um, I presume you meant not having uh, such a policy around menopause in place. Mm. Could, could you give us an idea of that? What What are the risks? of not having an appropriate policy? Well, the risks of not having a policy, of course, is that it leaves an employer wide open to claims such as this um, concerning discrimination and and detriment. Um, And it would show that they've really overlooked um, a work-related health issue. And so a a menopause policy can actually go a long way to ensure that um, sufferers are not disadvantaged and and for employers to to show that they're not discriminated against because the policy is is within the workplace and so that is is a good foundation uh, for any company knowing that this is a, a potential area of litigation and if you were to give some advice to a, an employer not necessarily even a, a particularly large or well-resourced organisation about what to put into a, a menopause policy. Is that something you'd be able to do based on based on your insights from this case and knowing what went wrong in the best case? Well, yes. I think um, it's always good initially to set out a statement of intent in any policy. Um, so uh, set out the commitment um, to your employees uh, and acknowledge the menopause, um, that it's uh, an important equality issue uh, for uh, female aspects of the work, uh, female employees of the workplace, and, and then really set out the definitions of such a policy and the aims of that policy. <clears throat> and the aim really uh, must be to help support affected employees um, and give them guidance and direction and also to ensure that their employees know that, that it's not a taboo subject because a lot of employees will feel that it's a taboo subject because if you look at the symptoms related to the menopause, a lot of women will feel that they are unable to bring their issues to the surface because they'll be concerned that employers look very uh, dimly on on um, how they are being affected. For example, the the brain fog that's referred to with the menopause and the insomnia, uh, the night sweats and all of the things that can make your productivity at work affected. So a lot of women uh, will not want to raise this, uh, raise their employer's awareness of this. And so I think it is very important to reflect in any policy that the employer is approachable over this and that it's not a taboo subject and that uh, the menopause is recognised as a a real health concern. Um, uh, The other thing is to set out 
what the menopause is and how it might affect individuals differently and also set out the the legislative provisions relating to both health and safety and the quality uh, in the context of of the work environment and employees. I wonder if I could just jump in there. You mentioned legislative provisions and you've Mm -hmm. referred to health and safety. Uh, Are there any specific legislative provisions that were engaged in in the best case or or that you're aware of otherwise to protect women going through the menopause? Well, regrettably not, um, and I can't foresee this changing within the law for some time because the difficulty with the menopause, and I'll, I'll come back to the policy, but the difficulty with the menopause is that it often strikes around the age of 44 and can go, go on to the age of 58. That's the sort of spectrum we're talking about. So, for example, where you have um, the protected period with, with a pregnancy, if we look at that um, aspect, which is uh, clearly defined within the legislation, it's a separate area of discrimination. Just, just to interject, med- that's, that, that's the, the, the period referred to essentially from conception up until the point where yeah. the, the, the pregnant worker returns to mm. work having given birth. Exactly. Uh, but with the menopause, this is incredibly difficult to timestamp um, and pinpoint any time in which the menopause started because there are three aspects to the menopause. There's three stages. There's perimenopause, menopause and postmenopause. So when a female is in perimenopause, it's very, very difficult to say when that exactly started because there are so many symptoms that can relate to lots of different things in life. For example, insomnia, night sweats and so forth. So it's very difficult to say, well, that's when the menopause started. So I don't foresee the legislation becoming um, detailed to the extent that we're going to have a separate area of law dealing with this um, characteristic. But at the moment, um, and for this case, clearly, the areas of the law are the Equality Act and the three protected characteristics of age, sex and disability discrimination, and also Health and Safety at Work Act 1974, which provides for safe working and extends to the working conditions when experiencing impairments from menopausal symptoms. And then there's the ACAS new codes of practice surrounding flexible working. And so all of these aspects of the law uh, provide enough um, uh, of a uh, mechanism to bring a complaint and litigate it within those parameters. And so when you're looking at a policy, uh, you need to reflect these areas of law within the policy and the legislative uh, provisions uh, and cover the meaning of discrimination where someone is put at a disadvantage or treated less favourably at work because of a menopause-related protected characteristic. Uh, and I also think you need to set out um, the roles and responsibilities of management 
uh, and equality within the management structure uh, that um, it should be open to the discussions about the menopause in the working environment but but also set out the available support uh, most importantly so um, some companies will be able to, to provide quite a lot of uh, support to their staff it really depends on the size of the organization but um, they might have uh, better flexible working arrangements they might have um, you know drinking facilities available cold water good ventilation areas where you can take a break that's uh, specifically um, designed for those things so that if somebody is suffering from the menopause and they become tired and so forth that, that this is all reflected in the policy and people know that they are supported um, to that extent and I think if a policy were to offer that I mean some some companies will be able to offer shower facilities even um, and air, air conditioned rooms uh, and so forth and some will be able to offer um, health screening appointments or they'll be able to offer counselling services and, and things like that so I think a company just needs to look at what support is available to its members of staff and reflect that in the policy, however big or small the organisation is. And I think if they were to cover all of those bases and set out the points of, of contact of, of who an employee is to go to to discuss these issues, then I think that um, should provide for quite a comprehensive policy within an organisation. If an organisation is a bit stuck, I, I suppose one option might be just to instruct HR to procure such a policy or, or to commission a policy to be drafted for your organization. Um, mm. are, are there any other um, solutions? In, in particular, does ACAS have anything that can be uh, helpful to, to employers looking to get, get a, a menopause policy off the ground? Well, I think ACAS does have advice on uh, on uh, the menopause, and that would be uh, quite a good starting point that's freely available for employers. But um, I, I think that companies invest in so many things that uh, if they made provisions, it, it wouldn't cost a company an awful lot to invest in a HR and employment law specialist just to get such a policy right for the workplace um, or to provide guidance on drafting such a policy because it's so important uh, to get it right. Thank you so much, Wendy. Just to come back to one other point you made, you you, you spoke, I think, about um, menopause-related protected characteristics. I think think you're referring there to Section six of the Equality Act 2010, aren't you? And, and of course, protected characteristics can be such as uh, sex or disability. Um, the menopause is not a protected characteristic, is it? So what are the protected characteristics that are engaged by the menopause? Well, really, it, it's going to be um, age, sex uh, and disability discrimination, isn't it? So it really depends how the menopause has affected somebody. But in this case, uh, the context was that the um, manager of the uh, 
establishment effectively made Mrs. Best feel extremely uncomfortable and Mrs. Best had expressed that she didn't want to talk about the menopause uh, and he persisted and um, that then filtered into sex discrimination Uh, and what's more it was in the context of covid when she was also expressing issues about the menopause and her rage and being that time of her life. Uh, And the manager then went on to talk about COVID in a newspaper clipping that effectively she wouldn't she she wouldn't be chosen to persist on a ventilator if you remember the the, the issues about ventilators around covid at the time and they were in short supply and he effectively said to her that she her ventilator would be switched off over and above a, a younger person uh, and therefore we we then went into uh, age discrimination but but i'm i'm quite certain it could um filter into disability discrimination it just really depends on how prolific the symptoms are and and how it really affects somebody but all characteristics could be triggered by the menopause it's an interesting question isn't it i mean disability discrimination is notoriously quite a quite an amorphous concept in employment law and Mm. um some types of disability, you you can be disabled at certain times and then deemed not legally disabled at other times. It's a a function of the severity of your symptoms or or, or the extent to which your your life is impacted at any given moment of time. So I I don't Mm. see, what what an interesting thought, but I I don't see why in certain cases uh, someone particularly badly affected by the menopause couldn't be deemed legally disabled. But that just to be clear, that wasn't the case in the best case, was it? No, that wasn't the case in the best case. The, the best case concerned age and sex discrimination and, and various detriments suffered from um, effectively what's called whistleblowing. But uh, I, I don't see why the menopause couldn't be um, brought into the spectrum of disability. It, of course, it depends um, on the whether it's long-term, and, and you'll know all the, the tests um relating to disability and so will our listeners. But um, I, I think that there are so many symptoms attached to the menopause that it, it can interfere with someone's life extensively and quite and could quite easily become uh, substantial. So uh, I think those are the things employers need to bear in mind. The menopause is not the same for everybody. Uh, and it, as I say, it can last for a very long period. So uh, I think that employers need to make themselves aware uh, of that, of the symptoms and, and how it can affect someone in the workplace. In terms of policy, I think we've covered quite quite well what employers can do and what resources there are, including what free resources might be available. Mm. And I'll certainly put some links um, in the notes to this podcast. But what you've described is also an employer being very insensitive and and saying crass things which were related to the menopause. Um, Yes. I suppose there's room for for education and awareness raising as well. Is that that something that you also consider an important takeaway from from this case and indeed other cases like it? 
Yes, I think that uh, employers need to educate themselves. All employers need to educate themselves. All management uh, directors, uh, anyone leading a workforce needs to understand the well-being issues attached to the menopause, how it can affect somebody mentally, um, how they might have to approach the topic in a discreet way because employees may not want to go about discussing their issues about the menopause, but they need to know it's going to be received well if they do and not be shot down with uh, ridiculous comments or or various assertions because let's face it that the the menopause has really been uh, the topic of of effectively humor in some workplaces uh, and that's what we need to get rid of the stigma attached to it because it's a it's a very real life changing uh, period in a woman's life and people need to have a little bit more respect about it and approach things uh, properly as they would do any serious health concern. Turning the table somewhat, if you were um, advising uh, a female employee going through the menopause who feels that they've had um, unwanted comments or other unwanted conduct related to the menopause, what should they do? What's the first port of call? Well, this is where I say separate policies should be in place. But I think their first thing to do is to raise a grievance about it because any tribunal is going to look at whether they raised a grievance about it if they then um, go into uh, uh, litigation. Uh, and also um, ACAS is a great support for employees, citizens' advice. Uh, and also if, if things aren't changing for them, then you know the normal course of is to instruct um, a solicitor or direct access to barristers, which you can, of course, now do. Some um, barristers are direct access qualified like yourself. So uh, sometimes I think that's a good route uh, for someone to exhaust all of those areas um, before they pursue a claim because they can seek advice and, and look at um, look at the process and the financial aspect as well. And, and I suppose, as with any other form of discrimination, really, the concern that you just have as a an employee would be to indicate you, you want to bring a claim to ACAS within three months of any act of discrimination. I suppose it's the same um, time limits that would apply in, in a menopause-related yes. complaint as anything else. Absolutely, yes. Um, the time limits are very, very important. Um, so raise your grievance uh, and make sure that any claim is brought within the three-month period. And, and maybe following what you've been saying, as well as raising a grievance, employees might ask if there is a menopause policy and, and expect one to be available or uh, one to be acquired if there isn't one. Exactly. And that's why I think it's important to have a separate policy dealing with this. Uh, it, the menopause is is an independent subject area as far as I'm concerned. And, and I think it should be reflected that way in any organisation to protect the organisation and the employee. 
Wendy, I feel we could talk a lot longer about ways in which the law on discrimination and indeed on the menopause might develop. But uh, I'm aware that you've been generous with your time and I've got no doubt you've got lots of other demands uh, on that time. So thank you very much for um, talking to me today and for sharing your insights with us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Alex. It's been a pleasure to come and talk about it. Thank you. I learned a lot listening to Wendy Miller today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I I particularly admired the way Wendy was able to detail the main concerns of her case in such a relatable way, and how she identified practical steps open to employers to make their workplaces more wellness-focused. I was fascinated to hear how insights from her criminal practice, such as taking evidence from child witnesses, have helped her to deal with vulnerable or disabled witnesses in an employment tribunal context, as well as about situations where criminal and employment law overlap. In relation to her recently best case, we heard how the menopause, while not covered as a protected characteristic in its own right, has become increasingly the subject of discrimination claims, and that it is covered by existing legal provisions of the Equality Act, such as those prohibiting sex and age discrimination. Similarly, a complaint by an employee or worker about the menopause is also likely, as was the case in the Lee Best case, to be treated as a protected act, with the potential for a claim for victimisation if that protected act leads to employer retaliation. We also heard about practical implications. Employers have policy resources available from ACAS. As Wendy pointed out, there is now a Menopause at Work guidance paper freely available online. And there are common sense measures that can be taken to assist employees going through the change. Start with the known effects of the menopause. Follow the ACAS guidance and work backwards from that. Finally, from the perspective of menopausal employees, they have a right to be treated with dignity and should make sure that they follow their employer's grievance policy should they suffer discriminatory treatment or harassment connected with the menopause. And if there is no adequate outcome from a grievance, it does lie open to employees to bring an Equality Act claim. They can rely on existing protections relating to age and sex to do so. The legal remedy, we heard, as with other discrimination claims, is financial compensation, which, in terms of lost earnings, is an award with no upper limit imposed by law. And chiefly, the remedy is injury to feelings, an award reflecting the extent of the discriminatory treatment that is commonly assessed in accordance with three tiers, vento bans, which Wendy referenced. If you are interested in reading further into these topics, I provide the relevant links in the show notes and we'll be putting the full text of the employment area of, uh, on the employment area of our website. So please visit, visit stphillips.com. That's st-phillips with one L.com. Thank you for listening.